Hello and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. My name's Holly Spear. This is Kate Carter. And I'm Kylie Colwell. And today is my story. We were discussing before the episode, Kate and Kylie do not know of this case. And I just had it in my mind that everybody did because it's a very famous Arkansas case, but not everybody is from Arkansas, I recently learned. So what? I'm excited. I don't know this one. It doesn't look familiar to me. I mean, I think you'll like it. Kate, maybe not because it's unsolved. I don't know. It's kind of become a (laughs) Why? I know. I know. It's just become my thing. Arkansas unsolved. Maybe I should. I don't know. Anyways. So the story I'm going to tell you today is the story that I was told when I was a little kid. It's a story that my mom told me when I was little, when she was trying to stress why I couldn't go play alone, why I had to stay in a group and why I couldn't talk to strangers. It's a story that shook my parents and shook kids in Arkansas and made citizens of the little towns of Arkansas realize that they were not as safe as they thought. This is the unsolved case of six-year-old Morgan Nick. So Morgan's family was a military family, and both her mom and her dad were originally from Arkansas. In 1993, the family moved back to Arkansas so that they could be closer to their extended family that still lived there. They settled in the town called Ozark, Arkansas. Morgan's mom started an in-home daycare. This allowed her to stay home with her kids while making an extra income to help support the family. So children came to the Nick's house every day and even on the weekends. On June 9, 1995, it was a normal Arkansas Friday. Morgan's mom, Colleen, had the daycare kids coming over and already had activities planned for them. She made the kids breakfast and they did some crafts. That night, after the children went home, Colleen was taking Morgan to a Little League baseball game. Morgan had two other siblings, but they were younger, and Colleen was planning on dropping off the little kids with their grandparents and just taking Morgan since all the little kids would be kind of hard to look after. They probably wouldn't be old enough to like care about the game anyway, so the mom is just going to take Morgan. The baseball field was in downtown Alma, which is only about 25 miles from Ozark. Colleen gave the kids a bath and cooked them grilled cheese sandwiches for dinner. And then, like she planned, Colleen dropped the little kids off at the grandparents' house and headed to the game. So this particular game was a little later than usual, and this was because it had been raining for like few, a few days straight the week before in Alma, and it had rained out all the Little League games. So this was kind of a makeup game, and it was a little bit later than would usually for a little kid's game. Morgan and her mom make it to the field, and this is a little field with a double fence and only two sets of bleachers. There's a small parking lot-ish area with no bathrooms, no concession stands, and Morgan and her mom took a seat on the bleachers. There was a group of little kids that Morgan knew. They were running around playing, but Morgan was pretty content sitting with her mom. Colleen said Morgan was not necessarily shy, but that she just preferred to sit with her mom rather than running around with the other little kids. But the kids, like, keep coming up to Morgan and, like, begging her to come play with them and run around with them. So right before the game ended, the group of little kids came back to Morgan one more time and asked her to go catch fireflies with them. And this piqued Morgan's interest. But Colleen tells Morgan that she thinks it's just too dark to be playing right now. Colleen then said that she went back and forth in her head thinking that she might be a little too protective. She thought about the times that she was told by other parents that she needed to give her kids room to grow. Colleen was one of those parents that walked their kid to and from the bus stop every day, even though it was less than a block down the road. 
Colleen thinks, well, her friend's kids have been playing there all night. She'll be fine. Surely. It's a fenced-in, tiny area with just a few rows of cars in the dirt parking lot, and she could see all of the area at any time. Colleen gives in, and Morgan was so excited that her mom was going to let her go that she flung her arms around her and gave her a kiss on the cheek. But it was in that moment that Colleen said that she felt a weird feeling, that even though it was a safe place for her daughter to be playing, and even though she was with a group, Colleen had a mother's intuition that something felt off. And she watched as Morgan ran off, the last one in the line of little kids chasing each other. Colleen turned back to the game, and this is the last time that she would see her daughter. First of all, how sad. Yeah, I'm sorry. Katie. Like, I'm having trauma already. But yeah. like, how sad. Also, I every mom will tell you, and I now completely understand as well, when you have a mom's intuition about something, you do it. I'm having an intuition that my baby's hungry. Feed your baby. You know, like things like that. Yeah. So if she felt off about that moment, I know she regrets it to this day. Like, obviously. But I can't even, oh, yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. And this is a small town too. And this is in 1995. So I think just like walking down the road is pretty totally normal. Pretty normal. Yeah. Very yeah. normal. But Colleen's yeah. one of those parents that's, she's going to walk them to and from the bus stop. So anyways, this is really sad, but probably the first time that she's ever let her go off on her own. So, so where the kids are playing is technically a parking lot, but it's fenced in. And I say it's technically a parking lot because it's not an official like parking lot with like concrete or whatever like you would think of the kids aren't just like playing in a dangerous parking lot it's more of like a gravel lot where you pull up and kind of park wherever and then you walked like to the field that was just you could literally see it you know so there was a sand pile at the back of the parking lot and that's kind of where the kids were congregating and playing as the game started to wrap up the kids started to head back in the direction of the field but morgan stopped to get the sand out of her shoes she sits down on the ground thinking she would be right behind him the kids ran ahead of her leaving her to tie her shoe on the ground. A boy named Ty actually did stay back with her as she emptied the sand out of her shoes, but when she put her shoe back on and started to tie them, he turned around to catch up with his friends. This is the last time that someone other than the kidnapper would see Morgan Nick. So the two kids' names that she was playing with was Ty and Jessica, and they made it back to their parents who were sitting with Morgan's mom. Colleen notices that Morgan is not with them and asks, where's Morgan? Ty and Jessica turn around, not even realizing that Morgan was not right behind them. She'd never caught up with them after tying her shoe. They said she was right behind us. She had to tie her shoe. Colleen got up to go get her. Colleen didn't see any cars leaving, but she couldn't find Morgan. This was at 10.40 p.m. In two to three minutes, Morgan had disappeared. Morgan's father drove down to the field to help everyone look. And at 11.07 p.m., the police got a call about a missing child at the baseball park which was just a block down the road from the police station. Police pull up and see a group of people gathered around. The officer that was first to arrive knew Colleen. Like many times when tragedy strikes in a small town, people did not think the worst. They were looking for Morgan, obviously, but thought it was more likely that she was just missing, not abducted. Morgan probably walked off and was lost, or a grandparent had miscommunicated with the parents and ended up picking her up. But. When the police began processing this as a crime scene, it dawned on the public that this was something much worse. That night, it was all hands on deck. The public assembled to help police. The public formed groups and made sections to rope off and started searching. They knocked on doors, every door in the area. It had just rained and some of the fields were badly flooded, but people searched every inch that they could. Although this was kind of a scrappy search, police knew that if Morgan was put into a car, they only had a little bit of time to find a lead before it was too late. 
Police pick up every scrap in the parking lot looking for clues. Coke cans, cigarette butts, trash, anything. And preserved it in case they needed it later. What they didn't see was tire track or anything to indicate that someone had like spun out or sped off or there was any struggle marks of any kind, nothing like that. Police got in front of the media every chance they got to highlight the search and beg the public to be vigilant. But police know, as we know, that the limelight of a fresh case would only last so long before the news moved on to another story. So the police begged Morgan's family to start getting up and addressing the public. And it's not that Morgan's parents didn't want to. At this point, Morgan's mother and father were completely devastated. They didn't feel like they could speak, let alone get up and be hounded with questions from reporters. But they did, in hopes that the public would take more of an interest in Morgan's case. Morgan's mother did well addressing the public and begging for answers, but John, Morgan's father, had a harder time. John remembers one instance where he was doing an interview and he was pushed out of the way by a camera crew. The interviewer actually told him they didn't care to hear from him, that they wanted to only hear from the mom. John saw the media as rude and disrespectful and he disliked them, so John kind of sat in the background. And as you've probably guessed, this made people speculate that John was uninvolved or didn't care. And then people began pointing fingers at John. But police spoke out saying that John was very helpful and that he was just as involved as Colleen and never denied them any information. They had no information that would lead them to believe that John has anything to do with Colleen's disappearance. John was severely hurt to hear people were blaming him. John says that he doesn't care that people talk about him as long as they're talking about Morgan too. Police talk to the children, Ty and Jessica, the children that were playing with Morgan. The children tell the cop that they saw a man talking to Morgan actually, and he was a white male with a scruffy beard wearing shorts. His shirt was off or open and he had hair on his chest and stomach. He was driving a red truck with a white camper he was sitting in his truck in the parking lot, smoking, and at times he would open the door or lean on the hood. Police tell the public to be on the lookout for a red truck driven by a white male that was short, white, and had a scruffy beard. In the meantime, the next night, police bring in Ty and Jessica again and try to get a sketch of the man. The children do give enough information to result in a sketch. The police's theory at this point was that it was a grab-and-go kind of situation, a man saw Morgan at the end of the night, saw an opportunity, grabbed her, and took off. Police ask anyone that was at the game that may have videoed the game to turn in their film. Remember, this is kind of an era where everyone's videoing everything with probably like camcorders. There's a home video for literally everything. So people start turning over their videos. And in one of those videos that was turned in, you can clearly see a red truck with what looks like a white camper on the back. So if you were looking at home plate, you could actually see the red truck off into the distance in the background. Police then asked for all video from the entire complex, the high school field, any baseball field, to see if the person that kidnapped Morgan had been prowling the area. In videos, they find the same red truck at another baseball field earlier that night. And police don't have, they're not able to see the license plate or anything. So when I say the same red truck, it looks exactly the same, but we don't have anything to clearly say, like, this is the exact same truck. Also have, like, the white camper? Yes. I mean, yeah, what are the odds? Apparently, this is a truck that is, like, very popular at the time. Arkansas in the 90s? It, it's very on brand for Arkansas, I guess. Police urge the owner to come forward. They don't blame the person with the red truck. They're just like, if this is yours, come claim it so we can clear you and move on. But no one does. 
you would think that if the kidnapper was just a parent or family member or coach of a child playing, that they would come forward and clear it up. But again, no one does. These like small town little league teams, everyone knows like all the other parents and what they drive and no one knows who this is. Yeah. Yeah. So police are definitely thinking that this is the kidnapper. Although no one came forward to claim the truck, the police received a flood of tips of possible sightings of the red truck. Police received hundreds of calls. One of these was in Texas, where a teacher was almost abducted by a man with a red pickup truck. The woman actually ended up getting away, but was run over while escaping. There was a man in the same county that drove a red pickup truck with a camper attached to it, just like the report. The man actually ended up taking shoe polish or something of the sort and riding on the back of his truck. I did not abduct her or I didn't take her or something like that because he had been stopped so many times. In some instances, the public took it upon themselves to catch red trucks. Owners of red trucks were followed or blocked into parking lots until police arrived. A man gave an interview and said that he'd been stopped multiple times, but that he didn't mind. He said it was a minor inconvenience and he was just glad that police were doing their job. But no leads from this panned out. So then, 24 years go by. What-ish. There's some more that we'll talk about, but a lot of time goes by. It basically goes cold. So after 24 years, another police chief begins working on Morgan's case. And this is Jeff Pointer, who becomes the new chief. Jeff decides that he would start from scratch, go back to the beginning, go back over everything that was done the first few days of the investigation. Just three months after being appointed to the case, Jeff Pointer asked for a meeting with Morgan's family. He tells the family that the police department received over 8,300 leads in Morgan's case. The detective walked the family through what the police had. They believe that Morgan Nick may not have been the only target that night. So the first target, a teenage white female, was walking on the side of the road in Alma when a red truck passes by her and then stops and backs up. The driver rolls down the passenger window and asks the girl if she would like a ride into downtown Alma. The girl denies the ride. But the man doesn't leave. So the girl slowly starts walking back on her path down the road. But the driver just sits in his truck behind her, watching her walk. Finally, after some time, the driver gives up and ends up driving on. Next, on the other side of town, a mom hears her two little girls, age five and six, who are playing outside, scream. She runs outside just in time to see a red truck with a white camper pull away and drive down the road. Then, later in the day, two teenage boys were walking, coming home from the baseball field, and the two boys were stopped by a white male, again in a red truck, who got onto the boys for walking in the middle of the road. The boys watched the white truck turn down Walnut Street which is the street of the ballpark that Morgan would be kidnapped from later that night. Then again, later that afternoon, a few 10-year-old boys were riding bikes down the road when a man in a red truck with a white camper told the boys to get out of the road. Then, as we know, a red truck with a white camper is spotted in the back of a home video at the baseball game. Then another sighting, after Morgan would have been kidnapped. A group of teenagers were, quote, doing an activity down a road close to the river. And weed. I was thinking like lovers lane kind of like doing an activity and then I'm pretty sure they were smoking weed. So yeah. So while they were doing this activity, they saw a truck pull down the road and they said they thought they saw a male driving the truck and it looked like he was holding down a little kid. When the group heard that the kidnapping had occurred, they came forward and reported this to police. Police wait, say wait, the- wait, 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 wait. 
hold on. Kylie, say what I was going to say, because that didn't make any sense. They waited until after she was reported missing and it was in the news, despite seeing a child being held down in the suspicious part of a yeah road by the lake. Okay, mm-hmm. And you'll, we're getting a lot. There's going to be a lot of these, like, tell you later kind of things. This was when they found out they the kids went and reported it but we have some people not reporting for like six years anything so it's very hard i'm not saying this particular case but like i feel like a lot of these with like big cases you'll have a lot of false reporting Mm -hmm. like oh oh yeah i saw that truck yeah and i think that i think that it's possible that some of these leads i mean i think there ends up being five I, i mean there's a lot more tips but these five credible ones are the ones that police have picked out to match up with the timeline of events but I think it's entirely possible that some of them may be false so yeah they come forward and they tell the police what happened that night for investigators this draws a clear path of interactions that the kidnapper had on his way to the baseball field up until after he kidnapped Morgan okay so let's talk about people of interest first person of interest was named Charlie Vines Charlie Vines, or Charles, beat and killed Lily Jones, an 89-year-old woman who lived alone and was legally blind. So, disgusting. Yeah. Kicked in Lily's door on April 10th, 1993, and savagely beat and assaulted her. DNA evidence was limited at the time, and the case was stalled. Two months later, on June 23rd, 1993, two months later, Juanita Wolford was discovered murdered in her bed. The crime scene would be described as so horrific that it was beyond description. A man named Danny Bennett was arrested and charged with this murder, and the town breathed a sigh of relief. But not for long, because on August 10, 1995, 74-year-old Ruth Henderson was assaulted and killed in a crime scene that was identical to Wofford's murder. Police realized that they had the wrong guy. Bennett was eventually released, and the case goes cold for five years until March 2000. When a parent of a girl comes home just in time to find the horrific crime scene of their 16-year-old daughter being assaulted by Charles Vines. So they walk in on this happening just in the nick of time, and it's Charles Vines. Listeners, if you could see our faces right now. I pause for the facials because I can see them. But yeah, pretty, I mean, just a miracle that that even walked in. I mean, she definitely would have been killed. So Charles Vines' DNA would match the DNA that was collected at the other crime scenes. And Vines would later be named the River Valley Killer. I'm sure you're going to get to this, but I'm confused how a man with the MO for like elderly women and then one teenager. I don't know, it seems a little different. I think so too. And I think it might explain a little bit later. At this time, Charles made a deal with police that they would ask him about other unsolved cases. At this time, there was cases like Melissa Witt, Morgan Nick, and others that were unsolved in Arkansas at the time. If he confessed and led police to solving the case, they would take the death penalty off the table. And if you don't remember, Melissa Witt is another case that I covered, and it's labeled the Mickey Mouse murder, if you want to listen to it. And just a quick rundown of Melissa's case, but you should listen to it, actually, but, you know subtle plug. In 1994, Melissa was a 19-year-old college student. She would go to the bowling alley after class to meet up with her mom, and she would be attacked and abducted in the parking lot. She was abducted in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Fort Smith is about 20 minutes from Alma, where Morgan was abducted. I think that they're thinking that if she, if they pin him for this case, it makes sense that he would be also pinned for Morgan's case, but they don't pin, if you know the case, 
spoiler alerts unsolved, so they don't pin him for this case. But I think they're trying to connect these links because they really have nothing else at this point. Melissa's body would be found in the woods, propped up against a large boulder. Today, some no one has been convicted of her murder. Police cross-checked Vine's whereabouts at the time that Morgan was kidnapped. The detectives found out that Charles Vines usually picked victims that were in close proximity to his residence. And at the time of Morgan's abduction, Vines did live relatively close to that baseball field. There was also a prison rumor that Charles had confessed to another inmate about Morgan's murder. So this is kind of where we get this connection. I don't know how I feel about the prison rumor, just because Charles is pretty famous in the River Valley right now, and Morgan Nick's case is pretty famous. And this tip that they get is kind of from secondhand information, maybe thirdhand information. So-and-so tells so-and-so who reports it, you know? So anyways, that's, that's the tip. But you can see where police are kind of connecting the dots on this one. So the FBI and Alma cops want to talk to Charles. They go to interview him. But by the time the police get to him, they learn that he has cancer and is already in a state of being nonverbal and incoherent, and he dies a few days later. Officers also have reason to believe that he may have had a red truck with a white camper at the time, but the officers have been unable to trace the exact truck to Vines with any kind of VIN or license plate number. I think it was like a neighbor saying that he had one or someone said that they saw a red truck with a white camper. So it's kind of a rumor at this point. No more information that kind of just fizzles out. All police can do at this point is talk to people that Vines knew and search places that Vines frequented. In the interview where Vines confessed to the other murders, Vines said that he had thought the best place to hide a body was under rocks and concrete. Police bring cadaver dogs to Charles' property and the road by the lake that the teenager saw a man holding a child down in the car. Police want to search this area because this would have been the last place that Morgan was seen, if that was her. Police bring out these dogs, actually three different dogs, at three different times, and all the dogs alerted to different areas, so police get permission to start digging. And to the great disappointment of everyone, nothing was recovered at any places that the dogs alerted to. Dogs and cadaver dogs, scent dogs, are really good, but they can alert to things other than dead bodies, like dead, well, dead animal bodies, or food, or really anything, and at this time... The area had become completely flooded and was flooded pretty regularly at the time. So they think that it's possible that could have thrown the dogs off to alerting to different scents. Later, Vines would confess to the murder of Juanita Woford. This is kind of where the lead fizzles out. Let's fast forward to May 2020. Investigators are going back over Morgan's case. They reconnect with some of the witnesses listed in the case file. One of these individuals comes in to talk to investigators and claims that he knows the individual that could be responsible for Morgan's abduction. Yes, this is 2020. So another person reporting things like way too, wait, I mean, way too long. Maybe he just got a little bored during the pandemic. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was getting bored. So, but actually, I don't know. Okay. So police today are not familiar with this person. This person is named Billy Jack Links. Police learn that Lynx attempted to kidnap a child just three months after Morgan's disappearance. An 11-year-old girl told police that she was walking with her younger brothers in downtown Van Buren near the Sonic. By the way, Van Buren is about 10 minutes down the road from Alma, which is where Morgan was kidnapped. When the man pulled up to them in a red pickup truck, the man talked to all three of the siblings, but it was very obvious that he was interested in speaking with the girl. So he offered the boys money to go get them something to eat trying to lure the girl away. And this is scary because the man is actually able to lure 
all the children about two blocks down the road. The man offered the girl money and then made sexual comments to her and offered to pay her to get in the truck. The man dropped a cigarette out of his window and tried to get the little girl to come closer to pick up his cigarette. Thankfully, she yells for her brothers to come over and tells the man she's going to call the police. The children take off running towards the Sonic and hear the truck speed off. Police believe that if she would have come over to pick up the cigarette, he would have thrown her in his car. As the truck is speeding away, the children hear the sound of a loud noise of the truck crashing, so he hit something, trying to flee. But he ends up, like, I guess he didn't hit his truck too bad because he ends up, like, I guess, reversing and speeding back off. So police are now looking for a driver of this car that the children describe, and it's been crashed, so... This would make the news, and witnesses called in and told police that he had seen a man driving a truck talking to kids from across the street at a bank. So this was, while this was going, this witness is like, yeah, I I saw this entire interaction. And luckily, he, not the entire interaction, but he saw the man talking to the kids. I don't think he saw, like, maybe the kids running or the guy, you know, hitting the pole. But he saw an interaction that made him uncomfortable, and luckily he recorded the license plate because something just didn't seem right to him. Police search for the plate and find out that it is a 1986 red Chevrolet pickup, and it is registered to Billy Jack Lates. Police easily get a search warrant for Billy's truck and Billy's house. Police see the truck in his driveway with damage that was consistent with the little little wreck he had. So he's arrested and interviewed. Billy would obviously deny all of this. And he later kind of like goes back a little bit and says, well, I remember drinking that night. I remember driving and talking to some kids and giving giving the money, but that's all I remember. But Billy is charged with sexual solicitation of a child in 1995. This is because police didn't really need Billy's admission because when police found Billy's truck, they found paint fibers on the pole that he hit that matched his truck. And on the truck was fibers from the pole. So his an idiot he would die in prison in 2000 Mm. yeah today the little girl from that night would be interviewed by abc and say that she remembers the truck being red and having a white camper investigators say that the truck lines up with the one from morgan's abduction in even more ways than one the group of boys that had been riding their bikes down the road that night that morgan disappeared had said that the red truck had a dent in the side door and this girl would say that she remembers a dent in the door as well So this is great. Police had a search warrant for Leak's truck and all the evidence and all of the fibers should have been collected and stored in the Arkansas State Crime Lab. Investigators will be able to go back and search and see if anything in the truck can be linked to Morgan. Except- I wonder what's coming next. Yeah. None of the evidence collected from Leak's truck in 1995 can be located. Of course. We don't know if it's lost. We don't know if it's destroyed. We don't know. Apparently, at the time, Lynx was given a polygraph questioning him about Morgan Nick, and he passed. And so that's, that, that was it. They kind of stopped thinking that he was also responsible for Morgan Nick. Police only have documents describing the search of the truck, and the truck can't be found. Judging from the written record, there was blood found in the truck, but this is the 90s. The DNA is not advanced, and all we know is, yeah, it's blood. That's it. He's my guy. That's who I'm going with. Yeah. Originally, his property was searched. They dug around Billy's property, but they never broke through any concrete. And there was a concrete slab that was laid around the time that Morgan went missing. 
police have now said that they will do a dig and they will be busting up this concrete. How freaking frustrating that they could potentially solve this case if they had this evidence. It's more likely than not. We know how evident DNA gets places. If Morgan was in that truck, it probably would be there, but we have nothing. All police can do is dig at his former residence and they bust up the concrete, but find nothing. It's yet again another devastating blow to Morgan's family. Okay, so ready for this. Good news-ish. We know that we searched Link's truck and then lost the evidence, and now police can't find the truck. They don't know if it's wrecked, salvaged, sold in an estate. They don't know. But then police just run the VIN number and realize that the VIN number is now registered to someone. Someone has bought this truck. Someone 30 miles from Alma. So this is literally a miracle, and the police rush to find this truck. They find out that ever since Lynx was arrested, the truck has been sitting at an impound lot. And the truck had never had any owners until it was auctioned off to the man who owns it now. He had actually bought it for him and his grandson to restore together. The camper is no longer attached, but you can see where the camper sat on the truck. Like there's damage to the truck where a camper would have sat. So police tear this truck apart and they find a single blonde hair under the floor mat and blood on the dash. Police wait to see if there's any DNA. The blood test comes back from the FBI lab in Quantico. Sadly, there was not enough blood to find DNA. The hair test comes back, and it comes back inconclusive. So they're not saying that it is or isn't Morgan's hair. There's just not enough to determine. We know that, you know, this truck has been sitting in the sun and in the heat in a lot for so long, and they... The DNA that would have been there, if there was any, is degraded at this point. They do keep as much DNA as, or as much of the material as they can in hopes that maybe someday the, we might, you know, develop to a point where we can test things like that, but they don't have enough right now. But there's a sliver of good news. There was a fiber found as well, and it was bluish green, which would have been the same color of the Girl Scout shirt that Morgan was wearing the night she disappeared. And FBI technicians were able to match the fiber to the Girl Scout shirt that Morgan was wearing. So this is huge. It's great. It's highly unlikely that some random fiber would match the Girl Scout shirt. But it's not so much of a home run as it sounds because it's not enough to say that this is the shirt. It's just saying that it is a shirt that matches the Girl Scout shirts that they had at the time. It's the same fibers. It's the same everything. And it matches, and it's highly unlikely that it could be any other shirt. But we don't know that it's Morgan's shirt, because we don't have Morgan's shirt. So this is not enough to say that Billy Lynx is the man that abducted Morgan or that Morgan was in his truck that night. But this tells police where to focus their attention. Everyone is still hopeful that Morgan will be found someday. However, they say they are realists, and they know that every day that they don't find Morgan, even this many years later, their chances of ever finding her or learning what happened to her decreases. But Morgan's family and investigators remain hopeful. They have said they're not going to get tunnel vision and decide they will continue to investigate any more leads that they get. They'll keep investigating Billy Lynx and Charlie Vines and any other leads that they get. Colleen Nix has started the Morgan Nix Foundation which works to educate children and teenagers about personal and online safety and prevent child abductions. The foundation assists the attorney general and local law enforcement agencies and families in missing persons cases. 
And what better people to carry on this legacy than the parents of Morgan Nick? And that's the unsolved case of Morgan Nick. Well, that sucked. I, I vote for Billy. Yep, I do too. I mean, there's a hundred million red flags in this story, but everything kind of lines up to him anyways. Literally feel like I'm going to have nightmares tonight. So are are we going to like at some point do like no kids, you know, now that there's a child in our group, we're just going to maybe do an uh, off limits or, you know, no. I don't know if you noticed, we'll but at the end, listeners, you can't see our screens, but Millie is, has joined us because she was throwing a temper tantrum halfway through and she's now watching and, and not listening because mama yes. don't want her listening to this yet, but she doesn't know what we're saying. No, she has no idea. No idea. I will say kudos to that 11 year old girl who didn't get tricked into going into the truck. I yeah. was in that moment. I was thinking, I was like, you guys totally know when Millie's 11 years old, she's going to like fight. Some, like she's going to write the, she'll like memorize the license plate, you know? We're going to teach her to do all that stuff. But like in the nineties, that's really good for a girl to be like, I'm going to call the cops, like, and knowing all the signs and everything. I mean, there was a lot of flaws in the case. You know, we know that they lost evidence, but there was a lot of public and police too doing a really good job keeping some of this case. And we don't know why the evidence was disappeared. It could be not on the investigators. Maybe it's the state crime lab or whatever. Yeah. It's one of those cases that, my parents told me about when I was younger, you know, to scare me kind of into knowing how serious it was to not talk to strangers and not, you know, get left or leave anybody. So it was kind of a case that stuck with me that I kind of forgotten about. That's so sad. I feel so bad for like her family. I mean, obviously I feel bad for her, but like her mom that night, you know, like that's just to have that intuition and then for all of this to happen. And then the fact it's still unsolved. Yep. And so it's still ongoing. They're still looking at things and trying to look at the case from different angles and restart and restart. So maybe it's hopefully one that we'll get to update you guys on, you know, being from Arkansas, almost just what an hour away from my hometown. It's we say on the episodes a lot of times, like if you know anything, and I think it's sometimes it's far fetched because we're not a big podcast right now, but you listen to this from Arkansas and you know anything or your parents know anything, you can contact the FBI and then tell us. Well, that's all I have today. So we are going to jump into overtime. Kylie has something that she's been thinking about. I've been thinking about what my death row meal would be, my last meal. Kylie, that is a good one. What would it be? So I've good. literally today in the middle of the work day, I wrote it down on a post-it note. Here you go. Her mind is all over the place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We call my, that ADHD. Yeah. Yes, but it comes in handy. Okay. My appetizer would be spinach and artichoke dip. I'll right. trade you with that for a hot crab dip. I'll do a hot crab dip as my app. That's a good one too. Mm-hmm. And you then- know what I want? Ballpark nachos. Queso. Yeah, I was going to say something that has to do Ooh. with queso. Yep. Any kind of nachos. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Kate, I think you're also going to like this one. My entree would be a cookout tray. I would Absolutely. Do Absolutely. What's in it? Chicken tenders, quesadilla, okay. Okay. onion rings, and oh. a peanut butter shake. Okay. So we have opposite cookout orders for sure. Mine would what be a cheeseburger, a hot dog. No, no, no. Sorry. A cheeseburger, a corn dog hush puppies 
and an M M&M M Oreo milkshake. I do love their hush puppies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't. I'm not a like corn corn dogs. It's just something I'm. It's a cookout thing. I've never been to cookout, so I can't say that. I would have much more of a sophisticated meal than you cookout peasants. I would yes. have um surf, surf and turf. Hear me out. Ooh, mm-hmm. medium rare, little mm. on the rare side. Crab legs, oh. Cajun mm-hmm. Cajun style, spicy. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Butter, um, hot butter, dip them in. Yep, hot hot mm-hmm. garlic butter. I love lima beans. Some disgusting really good rolls. I don't know where okay. where from. I yeah, I love lima beans. Mm-hmm. Texas Texas Roadhouse. Roadhouse. <laughs> yes, Texas Roadhouse rolls. I, I feel like are we all fatties right now? This they're is a little like, sweet for me. The Texas Roadhouse rolls are kind you of touch your mouth. Even you, if you don't put the butter on them, because okay, I don't no, even put the no, butter just on the them. butter, just the butter. Yeah, but it's the cinnamon butter that you have to. Oh, I don't disgrace. want it. Well, disgraced. And then for dessert, Heath Concrete. Do you know what those are? Yeah, yeah, no. milkshake. It's like a thicker milkshake. Yeah, it's like a. You eat it with a spoon. Like, like a, a milkshake, but it yeah, yeah yes, but it uses like um frozen custard. Cu- yes, custard. That's what I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my dessert would be exactly two Malamars cookies mm. in an espresso martini. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I ever since I. I think ever, I haven't told you guys this, but so ever since I gave birth to Millie, when I, it was like during Christmas, my family was here and my sister-in-law, Diana, shout out Diana. It's, she was like, Hey, have you had a drink yet? And I was like, no, like I, I haven't, you know, a few weeks post post labor. And she was like, well, what, like, what drink do you really want? And I looked at her and I was like, I want an espresso martini. And so she made me an espresso martini. Girls, I have made espresso martinis now, maybe every other day since since Christmas. I it is my go-to. I really need to lay back on it. If my trainer's listening to this, please, please don't come at me. But espresso Ooh. martinis are it. That is all I want. I want breakfast, lunch, dinner. I don't because I'm breastfeeding, but if you could, you would. I mm-hmm. if I could, I would. If that wasn't considered alcoholism, I would do it. Are you making I, them? You're making them yourself? Yes, I will give you the, my recipe. What? It's so yeah. So you do Tito's. I'm not going to do quantities, but like Tito's, Kahlua, Bailey's, coffee concentrate. I do the Starbucks ones, and then simple syrup, which is just water and sugar together mixed together, and it's awesome. I'll give you the actual. I'll text you guys how much to do of each. Some good stuff. I'm not an awful mom, but I'll be like holding Millie. She's like crying. I'm like trying to soothe her as I'm like pouring vodka into a drink. So. I think that just means you're an actual mom. I'm yeah. functioning. Yes. Normal human. Yeah. We'll still call. We'll still call on you and make sure. Oh, no. We're spitting up. I don't have a towel. Okay. And with that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. we, ended, we ended last week with one of Kate's, like, ridiculous things that she says about childbirth that makes everybody not ever want to have a child. Yeah. So yeah. we'll end with Millie spitting up on camera yeah yeah and with it's that, a lot of fun <laughs> and with that thanks for tuning in to another episode of over my dead pod if you want even more information including photos of the case you can check out our blog on OverMyDeadPod.com. be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check us out on social media at over my dead pod we will see you next week with another case bye bye bye